Good morning. We're looking at reason and science today, and uh, I think I, I kind of got it because I have a keen interest in science. So um, I uh, always did have, um, I had a very keen interest in maths and science growing up, fascinated by things uh, in nature, things in the universe, how everything works. I was the kid with the chemistry set for Christmas, with the microscope, um, and with the telescope. Um, in fact, when I was 12, I think I was, I spent my entire life savings, which came to the dizzy uh, number of £12.95, on a telescope. And um, it looked more like that, actually, than uh, the first one. And uh, we tried to find a comet in the sky. I never did find it, but, you know, I did try. Um, I didn't really have a Christian faith background, um, and those people at school who call themselves Christians seem to have a very simplistic view of the world and the universe, um, to certainly some aspects that meant I really struggled to take them seriously at all. Um, to become a Christian, as far as I could see it, you had to take your brain out and leave it at the door of the church, and uh, that was a real struggle uh, for me. didn't really want to take my brain out. Um, however, long story short, I eventually did come to a point of Christian faith, and, uh, and I think I became to understand that it's not just about the mechanisms of life. It's not about understanding the mechanisms of life. It's understanding the meaning uh, of life um, as well. And uh, I don't think I had to take my brain out at the end of the day. I probably had to do more thinking as a Christian than, than even before all of that. Uh, Stephen Hawking said this. He said, science cannot speak to the deepest needs of men and women or help with the moral dilemmas of mankind. Um, there's a, a scientist of scientists um, at least acknowledging the limitations that there are of science. And so I was asking the question, am I just around here for 70 years and that's it? Um, or is there something more to life? And I just had to come to the convinced that really there must be something more to life. I also began to realize that if we could understand everything about God, everything about him, then God would be no greater than our minds. And what kind of a God would that actually be? Isaiah 55 verse 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, says the Lord. And so as a, as a new Christian, I continued in science. I did a microbiology degree. Um, I went on and did a, a, a doctorate in cell biology um, at Birmingham. I went on and did two years postdoctoral research uh, in that area. And just more and more saw the beauty of this world uh, from a design perspective, the incredible intricacies uh, that we see of mechanism uh, in nature. But also realizing that I had the ability to appreciate such things. Um, that, that also is God-given to us as well. So as a biologist, I was, I was intrigued to know how, why does an autumn leaf change color and how does it change color in the, the whole process of senescence. But as a keen photographer, I was also just like taking pictures of trees with blue skies and enjoying the beauty of them. But it also doesn't take you very long to realize that the dog beside you is not really appreciating the beauty of what it sees. And as far as a tree goes, it has completely different interests <laughs> in that tree. But there is something about the human design, human nature, that we appreciate beauty. We appreciate and have a recognition for design uh, around us. Sometimes history has said that science and Christianity are in complete conflicts with one another. And there's the famous situation of the uh, Italian astronomer Galileo, you may have heard of him, a mathematician and astronomer who heard about the invention of the telescope in Holland about 1609 and decided he would build himself one. He built himself a much better one and uh, went on and discovered many of the things that we take for granted uh, today uh, from astronomy. 
But uh, the view of the, of the time was that the Earth was at the center of the planets and the sun went round the Earth. That was the, the scientific view. And to be fair, they had a fair bit of uh, evidence for that. Um, but the church of the day backed this view because from the church's point of view, the, the Psalms say that, that he set the earth on its foundations and the earth can never be moved. And there's a number of Psalms that say the earth cannot be moved. And therefore, for them, the scientific of the day, the physics of the day, and the scriptures as they understood them meant that they went for that scientific option rather than Galileo's, which was the sun is at the center and the earth actually traveling around. Because it's very easy to understand, you know, when you step outside here, to think that this planet is moving at 70,000 miles per hour. You would think you'd notice something like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just now and again. But um, we don't. And so, you know, the science of our understanding and the scriptures, the church decided to back actually a different scientific theory uh, of the day. I don't think the church was anti-science. It had sponsored astronomy for four or 500 years. Um, but it felt that this, this model fitted better with their scriptures, but obviously they were wrong. And uh, perhaps we know today the Psalms are written as poetry, uh, not as scientific literal descriptions. So just as Robert Burns, a great poet, wrote, my love is like a red, red rose, he wasn't implying that uh, she was crinkly and full of prickles, okay? but it's a poetic statement. And so the scriptures need to be treated with the utmost of respect. The Bible is not actually a book, it's a library. And it has different genres in it, it has poetry in it, it has story in it, it has prose in it, it has history in it. And uh, St. Augustine said this, he said, if, if scripture appears to contradict well-established, well-established other forms of knowledge, then re-examine that passage. Calvin's notion of accommodation uh, said that scriptures were not there to teach astronomy, but instead the writers were trying to make it accessible to the people. And so actually it's not God or science. Um, it's not God or nature. God is the, the creator, God is the ordainer, God is the sustainer, and yet he has chosen to work through nature in so many ways. We read these verses in Genesis chapter one, and it says in verse 24, it says, and God said, let the land produce living creatures. That would seem to be very natural, okay? The land produces living creatures. There's an element of nature involved in all of that. The next verse, the parallel verse, says God made the wild animals. Genesis sees no contradiction between these two verses, but actually parallels of the same thing. When we think of the, the word science, um, it actually means knowledge. That's what the words mean. So we get words like conscience, uh, conscience, which means with knowledge. Um, so that we have a conscience, we have, there's an element of moral knowledge actually in that as well. And in fact, the original sciences might surprise you with things like theology. So theology was known as the queen of the sciences. And, in, and she had a sister, Sophia, okay, which is the Greek word for wisdom, which is where we get philosophia from, philosophy, okay, the love of wisdom. And so these two were the, were the great sciences of the day. And the arts, bizarrely, were the things that were artificial. That's where the word comes from. So things like architecture and technology that dealt with artificial things were the arts. And so the word science in its modern meaning, natural sciences, really only started about 1850. And it might surprise you to learn 
that it grew out of people who had a Christian or Judeo-Christian faith. So many of the forerunners of science today were actually ordained priests and monks and clergymen, Jewish Christian believers. So for example, there's Gregor Mendel. You may have come across Mendel and your genetics at school. Um, the monk um, who discovered and founded modern genetics. Isaac Newton, you know, the great physicist, but actually he, was, he had a whole theological side to him and wrote commentaries on Romans and the rest. Galileo talked about the book of nature and the book of supernature, referring to the books of the Bible. Kepler spoke of scientific discoveries as thinking God's thoughts after him. And Faraday, who uh, pioneered magnetism and electricity, which we take for granted today. I mean, even now we have in, in Cambridge the Faraday uh, Institute for Science and Religion, named after Michael Faraday because he combined deep religious faith with an outstanding scientific career. And there's a reason why this developed as it did and why science developed as it did. And it was because of their understanding of God. The view they had of God created the right environment for what we know as modern science to develop. So first of all, they believed in one God, not many gods. So there was uniformity to this God. Okay, they, they believed in a God who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he was not like the Greek gods, perhaps, that might play tricks on one another, trying to outsmart one another. Okay, they wouldn't expect that. They'd expect some uniformity to things. So if they're wandering around on a mountaintop and they find a fish in a rock miles from the sea, okay, the Greeks would have thought, that's just the gods playing tricks, you know, playing games with us yet again. But not these guys. These guys are thinking, well, how did a fish get into a rock miles from the sea? Surely we need to find out how that happened. And so they would investigate that kind of thing. Secondly, they believed in a rational God. They believed in a God of careful design, a creator, an intelligent creator with reason. You know, as we've read, the heavens declare his glory and his handiwork. They, they pour forth speech. They reveal something of this God uh, of reason. And therefore, they expected to find reasons for why things worked as they did. They believed in a transcendent God. They believed that the creator God was very separate and different from his creation. You know, unlike perhaps something like Hinduism that believes that God is in everything. So even the cow is sacred. You can't touch the cow because God is in it. You know, he's, and he's in everything. Therefore, you can't investigate it. But because God was different, because God was separate from his creation, it means we have permission to slice up his creation and have a look at it and investigate it. Because it just reveals something more about who the, who the creator is. But it doesn't actually mess with him in that sense. Here's a quote from someone. I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts, the rest, the details. Who said that? Albert Einstein. Okay, a guy with a kind of more of a Jewish faith background, but a belief in God nonetheless. He went on to say that a legitimate conflict between science and religion cannot exist. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. And probably every one of us is guilty of one of those. You just gotta work out which one is your predominance. <clears throat> so science today is the study of the material world, the world of nature. But our questions of God 
ask about things that are other than nature, the non-material world. But it was the people of faith, and especially Christian faith, who believed the world and the universe could be explained. It was not incomprehensible, and they believed that one day it could be understood um, to a greater degree than it currently was. And so the first scientists and the first universities were all faith-based. I think something like 25% of them were ordained uh, in the church. And all the great scientists, whether of faith or not of faith, understand the limitations of science. Science is one tool in the toolbox, okay? And there are many tools uh, in the toolbox as we pursue knowledge. And there are many others, as you can see, kind of there. And different things require different tools. So if you want to fix a clock, I don't recommend a hammer, okay? Unless it's one of those clocks that chimes at six o'clock in the morning, in which case you have my permission, okay? What is better is a clockmaker's screwdriver. That's the right tool for the right job. And so science is one tool in the box. It's an important tool, but it's not a tool that, that works necessarily on proving if there is a God, okay? And there are different types of knowledge. You know, there's mathematical knowledge. Um, you know, two plus two is four. I don't know if you can prove that um, scientifically, but the mathematical knowledge is important. Scientific knowledge is experimental knowledge. You know, Isaac Newton's sitting there one day and an apple falls off a tree. And it, they always seem to fall in the same direction, these apples. And he starts to think, oh, maybe there's something going on here. And you dig a hole and it carries on falling and comes up with this theory of gravity and all of that. And it's repeatable, it's experimental. This personal knowledge, which is experiential, you know, the classic uh, line of applying scientific description to personal experience is the kiss, the approach of two pairs of lips with reciprocal transmission of microbes and carbon dioxide. Now, if that's your definition of a kiss, you're missing something. <laughs> Just saying, okay? But the God of the scriptures is both a personal God, okay, a relational God, and yet he's given all of these things, but he's infinitely greater than all of them. I need to, my son Ross put this together. He takes it into schools and talks about science and faith a little bit. Um, but science cannot speak to the deepest needs of men and women. There's so much more to understanding our world Here's what the Times uh, said, someone in the Times. Scientists or anyone else without religion have to face a world in which there is no real purpose, no meaning to torment and joy, and accept that when we are dead, we vanish and that there is no afterlife. So see, science has very little to say to some of these deep levels of human experience. You know, it can't really deal with problems of loneliness and hearts broken by grief. Science can't solve the moral dilemmas of our world. You know, it has no remedy for unforgiven sin or for guilt. But I believe that, in fact, there are significant signposts in our world that do point us towards God. Here's, here's just a few briefly just to touch on this morning. Firstly, there's the Goldilocks effect, or the anthropic principle. And that is the, the observation in our universe that everything is just right. There are so many facts and figures and physical constants from the world of science that are of such remarkable and unfathomable precision, it would seem the universe was very specifically designed to support human life. There's also the complexities of our body. If you think uh, about a, a grand piano, and uh, 240 strings, I, I believe, and it takes a skilled musician years 
to produce the, the beautiful sounds that comes from that. But the tiny human ear that appreciates the beauty of that has 24,000 microscopic hairs that detect that sound and then the brain that then translates that into the beauty that we listen to. We heard the bugle earlier on, a few notes that evoke such response, emotional response in our hearts and yet it's, it's there. Tiny, tiny human ear that, um, that does all of that. There's our conscience. You know, we, we have a, a built-in moral compass, if you like, to our life. Now, we know it's not perfectly adjusted. It's not always pointing true north. But we have a, a deep sense of what is right and what is wrong, of what is just and what is unjust. Um, we experience guilt in our lives, a very real experience, pointing towards a moral creator in a moral universe. And fourthly, God has spoken, uh, both through Jewish history and through Jesus himself, to the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word of God made flesh. And most people don't even, haven't even read it to find out what is in there. Um, and yet it's the, probably the most important uh, library of literature around. So what about the challenges of today? What, what, how does science affect our lives today in the 21st century? Um, because just as faith informed the scientists that pioneered modern science, we desperately need faith to inform our science uh, today. Christians who are scientists that will be game changers in the world in which we live. Because there are huge, huge issues, huge ethical issues uh, around. Because science has run ahead so fast uh, and in so many fantastic ways, but there are challenges facing humans uh, because of it. So just a couple of examples this morning. Whet your appetite. Big data. Okay, all the data that is stored on our clouds, our data clouds, even our data lakes apparently now. Okay, everything that you buy or eat, you know, on your supermarket store card is recorded somewhere. You know, where you go uh, with your phone data, what you think or believe with your Facebook and your tweets, posts and all the rest of it, who you know on your contacts lists, how you spend with bank information, what websites you visit, what you upload and download and when and where, all of that. And what big data does is it takes all of that, millions and millions and millions of bits of information, and starts to spot patterns and starts to predict our behavior. Um, and there are really helpful ways to use this. So for example, I came across an app that they use for soldiers coming out of the war to see if they are likely to um, develop post-traumatic stress. And it analyzes their exercise, as it does on your phone, you know. It analyzes their contacts, how many times they contact people, how much social interaction they have, uh, where they go, are they just sitting in the house all day. And then it flags things to their support worker and says, actually, this person is now vulnerable. Okay, data that is helpful um, in t helping flag telltale signs. It can spot abnormalities. It can help with possible terrorist activity, spotting signs in there. But then there's the, the things like the Snowden, Edward Snowden, there's a film coming out about him. He was the, the whistleblower from the US National Security Agency and leaked all that information because basically the NSA were, were eavesdropping or collecting all the information of millions of Americans. Okay? And they'd infiltrated Google and Yahoo and all sorts of other stuff. We've seen the Tesco bank shambles um, even this week when that information gets into the wrong hands. And so big data is worth billions. Okay, that's what companies and organizations will pay for it because it gives them information to then target us with their products and their information or more sinister. 
Last week there was a symposium on it, you know, looking at the pervasiveness of big data in society today, the complexity of balancing our need for security and our desire for privacy, the importance of ethically managing potentially intrusive data that's carried around on your phone, from every photograph, from every email, from every phone call, from whatever. And so there are challenges of scientific knowledge outrunning the ethical thoughts around it. Here's another controversial one, eugenics. Uh, eugenics just simply means good genes or born well. Okay, so the idea with eugenics is if you've got good genes, have lots of kids and there'll be lots of good genes in the world, but if you've got bad genes, um, then don't have kids and then that stops them. So disease things, even criminality things, whatever. That's, that's the idea uh, of eugenics as a social philosophy. But advances in science are creating options today. So today's IVF already allows us to screen embryos for inherited diseases such as cystic fibrosis. Okay, probably a very good thing. But soon parents will be able to check for all sorts of manner of traits, from hair color to character, and potentially choose their perfect child. Okay, Stanford professor uh, said this, the next couple of generations may be the last to accept potluck with procreation. Doing so, he adds, may soon be seen as downright irresponsible. He has a book coming out called The End of Sex, in which he explains a world which mothers will be given a menu with various biological options. Now, they won't refer it to it as eugenics. It'll be, it'll be biosciences, the new biosciences. And um, I think historically, eugenics has been, we've seen it in sort of Nazi Germany and all of that and the, the horrors of that. But embarrassingly, it was pursued as much in the UK and the US and discussed. Apparently Winston Churchill, when he was Home Secretary, wrote to the Prime Minister urging him to do more to stop the multiplication of the unfit. Okay? Others talked about sterilization of those not considered desirable as parents. Um, in fact, it was put, there was a paper, I think, put before Parliament in the 1930s. So eugenics was considered at that time to stand for one's belief in science and rationalism. So logical thinking and science. This is the way we need to go as a human race and to be liberated from religious qualms. But the arguments are reappearing. There's a guy called uh, Adam Perkins who's been doing some research and produced a paper from King's College in London. The author of this thing called The, the Welfare Trait, Play on the welfare, welfare State. And his studies that he's published, he calls um, people who are employment resistant Okay, those disposed to a life on welfare as a result of genetic predisposition and having grown up in workless homes. And he estimates, this is an estimate, that 98,040 extra people were created by the welfare state over 15 years due to a rise in welfare spending. So more welfare spending meant that families on welfare had more kids, is his argument, and therefore welfare spending is a bad thing because they represent what he calls an ever greater burden on the more functional citizens. He's even put a 12,000 pound figure on it and that's how much they cost in welfare and impossible crime that they are probably gonna commit. And his remedy and his advice to government is that the government restricts welfare so that claimants have fewer children. Okay, a perfect eugenic solution. And science has now identified genes that relate to alcoholism and criminality and sporting success. 
And so the questions will be, what are the moral obligations to improve society and what are the ethical boundaries that we have to bring to that? Science without religion is lame, possibly even dangerous. And religion without science can be blind. Um, I want to finish just uh, talk about my mom. My mom died, some of you will know, uh, in September. And um, we were looking at her life, and one of the things she was uh, when she was younger was a hurdler. And uh, really we saw her life as, uh, as a whole number of hurdles that she overcame. Um, she was the most resilient person that I think I've ever come across. Um, her mom died when she was two. Um, she fell on open fire when she was three. Um, she fell through ice uh, when she was ice skating where she shouldn't be. And she'd have drowned, but a friend fortunately pulled her out. Um, her house was bombed several times during the war when they were underground. Um, as a kid, she had polio, she had rheumatic fever, she had diphtheria, she had scarlet fever. In fact, the only thing we reckon she didn't succumb to was uh, an outbreak of night fever in the 1970s. <laughs> when she had diphtheria as a kid, they called the priest. They thought that was the end of her and uh, thought she was about to die. But they were, it coincided with them trialing penicillin, um, this wonder drug that they'd used during the war uh, for, for soldiers to help with infections, gangrene, all the rest of it. And they were now trialing it um, in, in the hospitals. And it literally, that antibiotic from science saved her life. Um, and she effectively went on to live through the age of the antibiotic, in my head. Towards the end of her life, she wrestled with all sorts of serious issues, lung issues, other infections. She was on a staple diet of antibiotics. Um, for quite a number of years towards the end. And ironically, antibiotic resistance, as we sort of come to the end of that age potentially, meant that they were unable to cure her in the end. And it will have been a bug that finally took her away. And she marveled at science. She marveled at its breakthroughs. She'd experienced its benefits. And she always knew that the best of this world was both brilliant and yet ultimately fails. And we remember that today as well. So we always hold the things of this world lightly and we put our hope in the one who doesn't fail. As the Gospel of John says, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever, I, I do love that word, whosoever, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And my mom's final hurdle and all of ours final hurdle is death itself. And yet even that one we can overcome in Jesus Christ, whosoever we are.